0: Setting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70 yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to keepitfunohio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Greetings to those who watch below. Today we have part 4 of Herbert West Reanimator. I know, we're already over halfway there. And things are just getting worse and worse for our poor narrator. So, this is Herbert West Reanimator, part four. The scream of the dead. The scream of a dead man gave to me that acute and added horror of Dr. Herbert West, which harassed the later years of our companionship. It is natural that such a thing as a dead man's scream should give horror, for it is obviously not a pleasing or ordinary occurrence. But I was used to similar experiences, hence suffered on this occasion only because of a particular circumstance. And, as I have implied, it was not of the dead man himself that I became afraid. Herbert West, whose associate and assistant I was, possessed scientific interests far beyond the usual routine of a village physician. That was why, when establishing his practice in Bolton, he had chosen an isolated house near the potter's field. Briefly and brutally stated, West's sole absorbing interest was the secret study of the phenomena of life and its cessation, leading toward the reanimation of the dead through injections of an excitant solution. For this ghastly experimenting, it was necessary to have a constant supply of very fresh human bodies. Very fresh, because even the least decay hopelessly damaged the brain structure, and human because we found that the solution had to be compounded differently for different organisms. Scores of rabbits and guinea pigs had been killed and treated, but their trail was a blind one. West had never fully succeeded because he had never been able to secure a corpse sufficiently fresh. What he wanted were bodies from which vitality had only just departed. Bodies with every cell intact and capable of receiving again the impulse towards that mode of motion called life. There was hope that this second and artificial life might be made perpetual by repetitions of the injection, but we had learned that an ordinary natural life would not respond to the action. To establish the artificial motion, natural life must be extinct. The specimens must be very fresh, but genuinely dead. The awesome quest had begun when West and I were students at the Miskatonic University Medical School in Arkham, vividly conscious for the first time of the thoroughly mechanical nature of life. That was seven years before, but West looked scarcely a day older now. He was small, blonde, clean-shaven, soft-voiced and spectacled, with only an occasional flash of a cold blue eye to tell of the hardening and growing fanaticism of his character under the pressure of his terrible investigations. Our experiences had often been hideous in the extreme. The results of defective reanimation, when lumps of graveyard clay had been galvanized into morbid, unnatural and brainless motion by various modifications of the vital solution. One thing had uttered a nerve-shattering scream, another had risen violently, beaten us both to unconsciousness, and then run amok in a shocking way before it could be placed behind asylum bars. Still another, a loathsome monstrosity, had clawed out of its shallow grave and done a deed. West had to shoot that object. We couldn't get bodies fresh enough for him to shew any trace of reason when reanimated, so had perforce created nameless horrors. It was disturbing to think that one, perhaps two, of our monsters still lived, and that thought haunted us shadowingly, till finally, West disappeared under frightful circumstances. But at the time of the scream in the cellar laboratory of the isolated Bolton Cottage, our fears were subordinate to our anxiety for extremely fresh specimens. West was more avid than I, so that it almost seemed to me that he looked half-covetously at any very healthy living physique. It was in July 1910 that the bad look regarding specimens began to turn. I had been on a long visit to my parents in Illinois, and upon my return found West in a state of singular elation. He had, he told me excitedly, in all likelihood solved the problem of freshness through an approach from an entirely new angle, that of artificial preservation. I had known that he was working on a new and highly unusual embalming compound, and was not surprised that it had turned out well. But until he explained the details, I was rather puzzled as to how such a compound could help in our work, since the objectionable staleness of the specimens was largely due to delay occurring before we secured them. This, I now saw, Wester clearly recognised, creating his embalming compound for future rather than immediate use, and trusting to fate to supply again some very recent and unburied corpse as it had years before, when we obtained the man killed in the Bolton prize fight. At last fate had been kind, so that on this occasion there lie in the secret cell laboratory a corpse whose decay could not have possibly begun. What would happen on reanimation, and whether we could hope for a revival of mind and reason, West did not venture to predict. The experiment would be a landmark in our studies and he had saved the new body for my return, so that both might share the spectacle in accustomed fashion. West told me how he had obtained the specimen. It had been a vigorous man, well-dressed stranger just off the train on his way to transact some business with the Bolton Worstead Mills. The walk through town had been long, and by the time the traveler paused at our cottage to ask the way to the factories, his heart had become greatly overtaxed. He refused a stimulant, and had suddenly dropped dead only a moment later. The body, as might be expected, seemed to West a heaven sent gift. In his brief conversation, the stranger had made it clear that he was unknown in Bolton, and a search of his pocket subsequently revealed him to be one Robert Livet of St. Louis. Apparently vowed to family to make instant inquiries about his disappearance. If this man could not be restored to life, no one would know of our experiment. We buried our materials in a dense strip of woods between the house and the potter's field. If, on the other hand, he could be restored, our fame would be brilliantly and perpetually established. So, without delay, West had injected into the body's wrist the compound which would hold it fresh for use after my arrival. The matter of the presumably weak heart, which to my mind imperiled the success of our experiment, did not appear to trouble West extensively. He hoped at last to obtain what he had never obtained before, a rekindled spark of reason, and perhaps a normal living creature. So on the night of July 18th, 1910, Herbert West and I stood in the cellar laboratory, and gazed at a white, silent figure beneath the dazzling arc light the embalming compound had worked uncannily well, for, as I stared fascinatedly at the sturdy frame which had lain two weeks without stiffening, I was moved to seek West's assurance that the thing was really dead. This assurance he gave readily enough, reminding me that the reanimating solution was never used without careful tests as to life, since it could have no effect if any of the original vitality were present. As West proceeded to take preliminary steps, I was impressed by the vast intricacy of the new experiment. An intricacy so vast that he could trust no hand less delicate than his own. Forbidding me to touch the body, he first injected a drug in the wrist, just beside the place his needle had punctured when injecting the embalming compound. This, he said, was to neutralise the compound and release the system to a normal relaxation, so that the remaining solution might freely work when injected. Slightly later, when a change and a gentle tremor seemed to affect the dead limbs, West stuffed a pillow-like object violently over the twitching face, not withdrawing it until the corpse appeared quiet and ready for our attempt at reanimation. The pale enthusiast now applied some last perfunctory tests for absolute lifelessness, withdrew satisfied, and finally injected into the left arm, an accurately measured amount of the vital elixir prepared during the afternoon with a greater care than we had used since college days, when our feet were new and groping. I cannot express the wild, breathless suspense with which we waited for results on this first really fresh specimen. The first we could reasonably expect to open its lips in rational speech, perhaps to tell of what it had seen beyond the unfathomable abyss. West was a materialist, believing in no soul, and attributing all the working of consciousness to bodily phenomena. Consequently, he looked for no revelation of hideous secrets from gulfs and caverns beyond death's barrier. I did not wholly disagree with him theoretically, yet held vague, instinctive remnants of the primitive faith of my forefathers, so that I could not help eyeing the corpse with a certain amount of awe and terrible expectation. Besides, I could not extract from my memory that hideous, inhuman shriek we heard on the night we tried our first experiment in the deserted farmhouse at Arkham. Very little time had elapsed before I saw the attempt was not to be a total failure. A touch of colour came to the cheeks, hitherto chalk white, and spread out under the curiously ample stall of sandy beard. West, who had his hand on the pulse of the left wrist, suddenly nodded significantly, and almost simultaneously, a mist appeared on the mirror inclined over the body's mouth. There followed a few spasmodic muscular motions, and then an audible breathing and visible motion of the chest I looked at the closed eyelids, and thought I detected a quivering, then the lids opened, showing eyes which were grey, calm and alive, but still unintelligent and not even curious. In a moment of fantastic whim, I whispered questions to the reddening ears, questions of other worlds of which the memory might still be present. Subsequent terror drove them from my mind, but I think the last one, which I repeated was, "'Where have you been?' I do not yet know whether I was answered or not, for no sound came from the well-shaped mouth. But I do know, at that moment, I firmly thought the lips moved silently, forming syllables which I would only have vocalised as only now, if that phrase had possessed any sense or relevancy. At that moment, as I say, I was elated with the conviction that the one great goal had been attained, and that for the first time, a reanimated corpse had uttered distinct words impelled by actual reason. In the next moment, there was no doubt about the triumph. No doubt that the solution had truly accomplished, at least temporarily, its full mission of restoring rational and articulate life to the dead. But in that triumph, there came to me the greatest of all horrors. Not horror of the thing that spoke, but of the deed that I had witnessed, and of the man with whom my professional fortunes were joined, for that very fresh body, at last writhing into full and terrifying consciousness, with eyes dilated at the memory of its last scene on earth, threw out its frantic hands in a life and death struggle with the air and suddenly collapsing into a second and final dissolution from which there could be no return, screamed out the cry that will ring eternally in my aching brain. Help! Keep off! You accursed little toe-head fiend! Keep that damned needle away from me! Hi guys, Brimstone here. Hope you enjoyed today's installment of the story. Only two more to go, and it certainly ramps up from here, I can tell you please feel free to like, share, comment, and subscribe to any of the videos on my channel. I'm not going anywhere, and I will continue to carry on in my own particular way, as I mentioned in my update video, which I did the other day. So, until next time, sleep tight.